Hi, and welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share real and personal stories of encounters with God. I'm your host, Robin, and I am here with Dawn, Katie, and Lindy. And at Storytellers Live, our prayer is that you would meet God in a new way through these stories, that you would realize that you're not alone, and that walls would be broken down and community would be built. Katie, tell us about today's story. Well, today we have Renee, who spoke at our community group in Birmingham that is off what we call Birmingham 280 Group. (laughs) 280 is a highway in Birmingham. That's why we call them that. But anyway, Renee spoke um, about the diagnosis of her husband's early onset Alzheimer's. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, she gives definitely, um, you know, early signs of it for you, how she provided care for him. This one really speaks uh, deeply to me because I'm kind of walking alongside this and I'll share with you after um, she shares. But um, but I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And one of the things that you'll hear in the very beginning of her story that really struck me is really her her struggle with being a believer because right. she it's so interesting. She talks about the left brain and the right brain and, right. and just being very science-driven. It was hard for her to understand the Bible, so then she felt like she wasn't a good Christian. Right. And so it's something to really think about as you listen to the story because I think so many of us can fall in that place. Absolutely. And again, we'll, we'll talk about it after her story. Yeah. But here's Renee. Before we start today's story, we want to tell y'all about a new partnership that we are so excited about. Never Thirst is a ministry based out of Birmingham that brings clean water to the most remote villages in the world, and they reached out to us wanting a long-term partnership over the next few months. I know. We are so excited about it. One of the things that just really spoke to me when we met with them and they were telling us about their mission is, I've been to Africa several occasions. I know the need for clean water, and I know the burden that is placed on women, and they're addressing those two specific issues. Yeah. Yes, and it is the women yeah. in, in the villages that is tasked with providing water for their families. And so just their their model to empower women and really get the village to buy in was something that spoke to us right. at Storytellers. Yes. But not only the woman, but they also are with the local church too. They get behind mm-hmm. them and they build a trust with these communities. And so that they, therefore they're able to bring the water in and then build these relationships with the community to provide this water and then also provide living water. That's right. Spread the gospel. That's right. Thanks, Never Thirst, and you can find them at neverthirstwater.org. We have one more piece of exciting news before we get to today's story. Y'all have heard us talk for several weeks about the Discover Your Story Bible study. And guess what? It is available for a limited time. We are going to do a limited pre-release between now and June 12th. So go to storytellerslive.org and get yourself a copy or 10 for your small group. Any order placed after June 12th will be shipped on August 17th, but we're going to do a limited release for early summer for those of you that want to do a Bible study this summer. Enjoy today's story. I think that I have the world's largest corpus callosum. What, you may ask, is a corpus callosum? Well, since I'm a physician, I feel like I can say these things, but the corpus callosum is that structure in the brain that connects the two halves of the brain, the right and the left. And you're probably sitting there wondering, oh yeah, I've heard of that right, left brain, but let, let me explain what they are and how you can remember it. So the, uh, the left brain, if you remember the letter L is straight line, sharp angle, is more responsible for analytical thinking, logic, um, seeing details. The right brain with its curvy top is more 
interested in art and seeing the big picture for the trees. And you're probably thinking, yeah, okay, I'm either right or left. Well, I'm both, hence my large copus colossum. I can't even say it anymore. But, um, and I come by that naturally. My parents, um, my, my father is a retired mechanical engineer, pure left brain. My mother is a retired teacher of gifted elementary students, almost pure right brain. And in school, I went to Vestavia High School. I was on the math team and I was editor of our literary magazine. Um, even my hobbies are a combination of right and left. I play the piano. And if you really think about that, that's a very left brain thing. You take those little black marks on a page and you translate them into something your fingers do, but the right brain turns it into music, brings nuance and emotion. Um, I quilt um, right now. I'm working on um, some paper crafts, some collage where I cut out tiny little things, very detailed, but then I recreate them on the, on the page in a different and new and exciting way. Even my career as a family physician is a wonderful meld of right and left brain. As a physician, obviously, I had to learn anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, all the detailed scientific things that we, you have to learn. But the art of medicine is when I can look at the whole picture, the whole patient, and come up with a diagnosis. I can tell if someone's really sick just by a feeling or looking at them. And then sometimes I can tell that mm, there's not really something physical here. Let me delve a little bit deeper into their emotional state. And that, that's the art of medicine. The one part of my life where I couldn't bring those two together was my, in my spiritual journey. Now, I'd grown up in church, went to church all my life, and know all the stories, all the theology. I just, my left brain just had a lot of trouble making sense of the more mystical, magical things. I remember even in third grade, I told my best friend, I just couldn't believe that Adam and Eve were the first and only people on the planet. And she looked at me like I was crazy. So I learned just to keep my mouth shut. But at home, I was encouraged to discuss my concerns and doubt, mainly with my father. So we would talk about those things that just didn't make sense. And what that did is just, it really hindered my spiritual growth because it felt like as a teenager and young adult that I was supposed to believe all that stuff. And I couldn't, therefore, I just wasn't a good Christian. And that's kind of where I was for a while, a long time, until my mid-30s. My mother invited me to go on an Emmaus retreat. And that is an intense spiritual retreat over a weekend. And, um, and I, I was, like I said, in my mid-30s, and I got to the point where if my mother thought something was good, I should probably listen. Even though I knew I wasn't the kind of person they were looking for to go on this retreat, but I went, and it was really good. Um, the next to the last night there was a large worship service, and we were asked after that service to sit ourselves and just and think about where we were going next well I was just overcome 
with guilt about not being able to believe all these things that I was supposed to believe. So I was sitting there crying and crying. And one of the pastors came up and asked me what was wrong. And I just spewed it all out. I don't know if (laughs) I just thought I needed to be honest and kind of told him what I've told you up to this point. And he was very kind and listened. And um, for a long time, we talked about my doubts and what they meant. And eventually he asked me to pray. So why don't you just pray about it? And I began, dear God, I want to believe. And I started naming the things that I was having trouble with. But as I prayed, that prayer turned into a prayer of affirmation. I began saying, and I do believe. And, I, and, and it all just lifted off of me. And what that did was it freed up my left brain to actually delve into uh, my spiritual growth. So I really studied the Bible. I learned about context, about who wrote the different books of the Bible, for whom were they written. I studied about the different translations and how we got the books that we had. And it, it just opened up a whole new world. The end result for that for me was exactly what Jesus taught and to the rich young ruler when the rich young ruler asked what are the the highest laws or what what do you say and Jesus replied to love God and to love your neighbor and that's what it came down to for me is all that stuff that I was worried about in the big picture didn't really matter what really matters is love the end. Um, so that's where I was. For a, a, that's where I have been since then. Um, so now my life was completely in balance, right? My right and left brain. And the place that I was really most proud of that and, and still am is that I was able to achieve this work home life balance that is really hard to do. And I was lucky enough to have achieved that. I worked part time and um, my husband worked part-time and we shared the medical practice and we shared responsibilities at home. So let me tell you about Harvey. Harvey is my husband and he is one of those rare people who at the age of 10 knew exactly what he wanted to be when he grew up, a physician, and he pursued that with all his might. Uh, we met in college, and actually, I can't even say that we met. When you go to a small liberal arts college like Birmingham Southern, you just you just know everybody, especially when you're in the same pre-med science classes. So one semester, we had three classes together, and one of them was French. And he asked me to study with him one day for French, and I turned him down because I didn't need to study French. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, well, he asked me out about two years later. Um, and this was after he had graduated, I was a senior and he asked me to the Crosby Stills and Nash concert. And I really wanted to go to this concert. So I went and what I remember most about that concert was leaving. He grabbed my hand and held on really tight. And we weren't dating. This was our first date. And I remember asking, why are you holding my hand so tightly? And he said he didn't want to lose me in the crowd. I thought that was really sweet. Well, we we started to date and from then and eventually fell in love. And when we were accepted into the same medical school at the same time, that really clinched it for us as a couple. And uh, we went to 
medical school together, residency together, and got married after the first year of medical school. And when we we came back to Birmingham after residency and created Double Oak Family Medicine. This is in 1992. When I was in residency, I did an internship with two women who shared a practice. They, one worked mornings, one worked afternoons, and it worked out really well for their childcare schedule. So I told Harvey about this model, and he was really excited about it too. So we wanted to create something like that. So the model for us was alternating days, um, and we. When we started the practice, we had zero patients and we grew that practice by having one of us at the office and the other of us was home with the babies. I was actually pregnant with our oldest child when we opened the practice and had another daughter three years after that. So one of us would be at the office all day. The other would be home with the babies, cooking all the chores that needed to go at home. And then we would alternate days. And as the children grew, the practice grew so that by the time the girls were in elementary school, the practice could support both of us being there until it was time for carpool and one would leave, pick up the girls, do their afternoon activities, cook, etc. So the ultimate goal was for us both to be full-time by the time our youngest was 16. Now, was on a big family vacation to Costa Rica when I first knew that something was wrong with Harvey. He was 50 years old, same age. We were in Costa Rica, like I said, over Christmas break, and he just could not remember what the guide was telling us to do each day. And it was just odd because I went worried about my daughters because we had separate rooms. Um, They had a room together. We had a room together that they wouldn't pay attention to what the guide was telling us to do. They were fine, but Harvey all day, every day would ask me, now, what time is lunch? What am I supposed to be wearing? Are we leaving today? It it was just odd. And um, our last day there, I got up the courage to tell him that I had been noticing this. And actually, even before that, a couple of incidences really scared me. We went zip lining one day, um, beautiful, high above the forest, but he forgot to, uh, to um, take out his, unpack his pockets, basically, of his keys and his wallet and his prescription glasses. And then, and then another night, we had eaten dinner and we were making our way back to the cabin. It was pitch black. And then our 17-year-old daughter ran ahead of us and I asked Harvey to go after her so that she would she could find her way. Well, she was fine, but Harvey got lost. And 45 minutes later, the resort staff found him and brought him back to me on a, on a golf course. So, so this last day, I kind of pointed all that out and, uh, and he agreed and, and said that he had noticed that he had been off. And he reminded me that he had been telling me that his, he thought his memory was not as good as it should be for the last few years. And I, I was like, yeah, you're right. And I just had been brushing it off as middle age. But um, I wanted to, at that, that last day, I wanted to ask him some questions just to test his memory, but he would know what I was doing if I did the mini mental status exam, which we do at the office all the time. So I asked him about birthdays. And he, with a lot of thought and time, he did eventually come up with all of our birthdays, but he did not know our daughter's birth years. I even said, well, daughter number 
two is 14. So can you do the math and figure out what year she was born? And he, he couldn't do it. And I, so I said, well, she was born in 1995 and her sister is three years older. So what year would that make it that she was born? 1998? So this highly intelligent man who was a fully involved parent didn't know our birth, the birth years of our daughters and couldn't perform mental math. So I asked him then if he would see a neurologist because I wasn't really sure what was going on. He, he wanted to wait a bit. He had some brain training games, some of those games um, like that he had ordered because he thought his memory was decreasing. So he, he bargained with me to work on these brain training games for two months. And if he didn't see any uh, improvement in his scores, he would go. Well, two months came and went. He'd forgotten about the bargain. So I had to actually cajole him into going in to see the neurologist. Well, she took our concerns very seriously, did the full battery of tests that you're, that you're supposed to do, and when we went back for the final like, look at everything, this is four months after Costa Rica, he was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. And she started him on the two medications that we use for Alzheimer's disease. And I was confused. I didn't really know what mild cognitive impairment was, but I knew what these two meds were. So I got home, got on the computer and looked it up. And basically mild cognitive impairment is just exactly what it is. It's a description rather than a a diagnosis, um, but it can turn into Alzheimer's disease or it can stay where it is. So that's why she did that. And mild cognitive impairment implies that they're, that only the people closest to the patient can see a problem. So my main concern obviously was, could Harvey continue to practice medicine? When I asked the neurologist this, she, very unhelpful in my opinion, said, you'll just have to watch him really closely. When I asked Harvey if he thought he could practice medicine, he said that he felt fully competent to see easy patients, but that if something was difficult, he would refer to a specialist. He told me that his medical assistant would sometimes help him remember names of medications, and he started asking me some simple questions in the office. We'd always relied on each other um, when we were stuck with, with something. But he started asking things like, you know, how do we treat poison ivy? And the medical assistant and none of the staff ever said anything to me. And I, I just couldn't figure out how I was going to know what was going on. I could read his notes and they were getting shorter, a little shorter and less descriptive. And I asked him again, Harvey, do you think you can still practice medicine? And he said, Renee, I'm going to have to rely on you to tell me when I should retire. Whoa, I, that was, um, that made me very uncomfortable. So I, um, I hit the internet again, trying to find what do other people do in this situation. And I found sites that addressed um, physicians who were impaired, but they only talked about impaired physicians due to alcohol or drug or inappropriate behavior. And they had programs for these physicians to, to rehabilitate them, get them back into practice, but nothing about cognitive issues. And in the search, I came on uh, 
our state's medical licensing board. And they also had programs for impaired physicians, but didn't say anything about cognitive impairment. But they did have a, an anonymous hotline. I sat with that knowledge of that hotline for about a couple of weeks and finally called. And I was expecting a kindly physician who would listen to my story and give me advice, but a lawyer answered the phone. And I just anonymously just didn't tell him either of our names, told this lawyer what was going on and about the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. And I said that I thought that he could still practice medicine, but I wasn't sure how I would know. Well, he actually was very kind and, and agreed with me that it was putting me in an untenable position to be the one to make the decision as the wife and the partner. And I realized that if I were the partner only, I would have no idea anything was going on. It was because I was living with the man and noticing subtle memory changes at home that I had this advantage. But this lawyer at the board said that I really did need a specialist to give a definitive answer to that question. So because the first neurologist wasn't as helpful as I had hoped she would be, I got on the internet again and found that UAB has um, a very reputable department of neuropsychiatry. And the head of their department actually had a special interest in mild cognitive impairment and young onset Alzheimer's disease. So I contacted him with email asking if, their, if his evaluation could give me this answer to the question, Does, is Harvey able to practice medicine? Well, it took a long time to get a response. I think he was on vacation, and it just takes a long time to get anything done at UAB. But in the meantime, I'd, I'd, I saw a patient who really set off alarm bells. So up until this point, no patient had said anything. But I walked in, and this woman was angry. She had seen Harvey the day before, and she just started saying things like, I don't have any trust in his abilities at all. He didn't seem to know what he was doing. And I was so taken aback. So I started asking, you know, specifically, what, what was it that, that triggered that? And the only thing that she could say was that he asked her what medication she thought would be best and then couldn't remember the name of it at the end of the appointment. Well, that was enough there. And, and to be honest, that was the only patient that ever said anything. So I hammered down on getting this appointment with the neuropsychiatrist. And we went. And this is a long, all-day affair. So they interviewed each of us separately. And then they tested his memory and his mental capacity every which way. We were there from, I think, 8 until 3 p.m., then they had to score it, and then we went back to get the end of the results. At the end of that day, though, he told me that it was really hard, and it was, he was exhausted, and it broke my heart when he said it made him feel stupid. And then we had to wait this month to get the results. So now it's September. This is nine months after Costa Rica, and the neuropsychiatrist told us that Harvey had young onset Alzheimer's disease and that he should not practice medicine. I, I kind of knew what was going to come. I knew what was coming, 
but I, I'm not sure that Harvey was, and he just broke down, and that broke my heart um, to see him so broken. And the neuropsychiatrist told us that we should call the board and tell them what was going on. They would tell us, they would help craft a plan to transition Harvey out of the practice. So that was a Friday. And so we had the weekend to tell our families. And so Monday came and after I had seen my morning my morning patients, I called the medical licensing board again, talked to the same lawyer, told him what was going on and asked for this plan to transition Harvey. And he said, no man, he's got to go home right now. But, but I was told there, there would be this plan to ease him out of the practice. No, ma'am, it's too much of a liability. He's got to go home right now. But he's got a full afternoon scheduled. No, he, he's got to go. So I had to tell my husband that. We, had, we called a staff meeting and told a completely stunned and unsuspecting staff that Dr. Harvey Harmon had Alzheimer's disease and was going to have to go home. And in that very instant, that beautiful, perfectly balanced life that we had crafted was completely upended. So all in that one moment, I became a solo family practitioner, primary parent to two teenage daughters, CEO and CFO of our household, and caregiver to my husband. He was able to stay home by himself uh, for four years, but I, we had a lot of support and help from family and friends, uh, mostly with our church community. And I want to tell you a few of those stories because it just blows my mind. But um, I play keyboard in our church band and Harvey would come with me to practice and then we would go on to Sunday school. Well, he started getting up and wandering around during our practice, and we go to church downtown, and that's not a particularly safe thing to do. So I told our friend Bill that I was going to have to step back from playing the keyboard, and he said, no, Renee, I'll, I'll sit with Harvey during practice. So Bill essentially became Harvey's shepherd and would just be with Harvey during practice, and they would go to the early service and go on to Sunday school and I would meet up with them later. When I told another friend, another Bill actually, that um, I was concerned that Harvey wasn't getting any socialization, he created a bowling group for these four guys. Another time I was going to have to close the office one day every other week to take Harvey into a uh, drug study. And I was telling a friend about that and she said, well, I'll, I'll sit with Harvey and so that you don't have to close the office. My favorite story is I had, I had this great idea to hire a chef. I'd gotten really tired of cooking dinner after a long day at the office. And I mean, I had things figured out, but it was, it was, it was tough. So I had this great idea. I would hire a chef and they would come, he, he or she would come cook with Harvey. So I was telling my friend Nancy about this and she said, no, you don't have to do that. I'll come cook with Harvey. So once a week, and this is, this Nancy will tell you in a heartbeat, she is not a cook. When she would come once a week with recipes and they would go to the grocery store and shop and then cook this meal together. And this gave Harvey something meaningful to do for our family, gave him interaction with Nancy. 
And then Nancy would stay and eat dinner with us and had it ready to write when I got home. So I got friendship with Nancy at the same time. We even recruited another friend, Jill, to come every other week and do another meal with Harvey. It was just a beautiful thing. Even had two neighbors who noticed that Harvey wasn't walking the dog anymore called and I said, yeah, I guess he's just forgotten that. And they volunteered to come by our house with their dog and they walked dogs together. So that was for about four years. And then it was getting just too difficult to leave him at home alone. Um, He had wandered once and so I hired outside help and that worked really well. He also went to a respite care. There's a couple of those now, four hours a day. Things kept getting more and more difficult as they do. And it came to the point where I really needed to consider putting him in a memory care unit. So there's two main reasons caregivers make the decision to move someone into memory care. And it's incontinence and sleep difficulties. Well, I, I knew that, and I, but I thought that incontinence wouldn't be an issue. I mean, I, I was a mother. I changed diapers. I could deal with incontinence. But let me just tell you that grown man poop is not the same as baby poop. And also had it in mind that incontinence was just wearing diapers. But, you know, if you're memory impaired and you have an urge, you don't really remember what you're supposed to do with that urge. Poop and pee can go in different places. So I was dealing with that. The sleep issue was the one that I I knew would be the um, tipping point for me. And I had decided if my sleep was disturbed enough that I couldn't function well the next day at the office, that was going to be it. And it was getting to that point. He was very restless at night. He would get up, go to the bathroom, pee in the closet. And and I'm a sound sleeper, but it would wake me up because he couldn't remember how to get back in the bed. And, and so I would get up to clean. And, and I was doing okay until I just wasn't. And I was just at my wit's end. So I started looking for memory care units and found one and made that decision to go ahead and do that. So his room there needed, I needed to buy furniture and furnishings and decor because it was um, myself. So I went to Target and made a big old Target run for everything that he would need. And while I was at Target, I, I just was overcome with guilt. Am I doing the right thing? This is this feels terrible. I got married for better or for worse. I don't, what am I doing? And in the midst of that guilt, I asked God to give me a sign, which is just the craziest thing in the world because I would never do that as this scientist left brain person. It just, and as soon as I said it to myself, I thought, oh, no, no, no. Oh, I can't believe I said that. And I, and I just put it out of my mind and kept shopping. But when I left a Target, I wheeled my cart out and right in front of my face was a perfect, beautiful rainbow. And I just laughed and cried and I thank you, God. Yes, you heard my plea for a sign and you gave me about the biggest sign you've ever given anyone. Um, later that night, I was on Facebook and a Facebook memory came up. It was from a year ago. It was a picture of Harvey and I holding hands, walking to, walking to Sunday school. And I had titled it, when I hold his hand, he walks beside me, not behind me. When I wrote that, the year I meant it literally. Um, but this time it hit me that 
this is what God wants of us. God wants to walk with us and alongside us. Now, usually I'm just charging ahead, bulldozing my way forward on my own, on my own. <laughs> but that's not what God wants of us. And I realized that all those friends that were helping us, they were walking alongside and beside us, being the hands and feet of God with us. When I took Harvey to the memory care unit, the third sign that sealed it for me was when the unit director said to me, don't worry, Renee, it will be all right because we are here to care for your husband so that you can just love him. That's really what it pulled down to. I, up until that point, had been caring for him and now I could just love him. So he was in actually three different memory care units and five different geriatric psych units. Um, for two years and it continued to decline. And in about September, 2018, he'd gotten to the point where he couldn't walk anymore. So his brain couldn't send signals to his legs, tell his legs what to do. So he became wheelchair bound and, and bed bound. He started developing seizures. He had had seizures for a couple of years, but they were getting longer and having a harder time uh, coming out of them and he would forget to swallow. So we would feed him and he would automatically chew, but he would forget to swallow and he'd have to rub his throat to get the food to go down. But one day at the end of uh, November, I got a call from the nurse practitioner to nurse practitioner who said that it looked like Harvey had developed respiration, aspiration pneumonia. So he had a really big seizure about two days ago, two days prior to that. And they thought that he had probably aspirated some food particles that had been in his mouth. Um, so just kind of inhaled them into his lungs during that seizure. So I was, it was the middle of the week. I was seeing patients get the call. I always answered any call that came from the memory unit. So she told me this and then said, so do you want us to treat this or is it comfort measures only? And I'd known this was coming. I, I knew what I was supposed to say, but still it felt like, oh, you know, we're doing this now. And I can't believe it that I'm saying comfort measures only. I was able to clear my schedule for the rest of the week and my two daughters and their guys. So in the meantime, our oldest had gotten married and the youngest has a steady boyfriend. And we all met. Uh, in Harvey's room, and we're with him um, as he continued to decline. We were getting ready to leave one night because the uh, hospice nurse had told us that it looked like it was going to be another uh, two to three days, so we felt comfortable about leaving. But my son-in-law caught my eye, directed me to look at Harvey, and I could tell Harvey's breathing had changed dramatically. And I knew this was the end. So I told my daughters that I thought, this was the end, and the three of us got on the bed with Harvey. I held one hand really tight, and another daughter held his other hand, and, and I prayed. I prayed thanking God for the, the gift of Harvey, the gift of Harvey to this world, to his patients, and to us, and I commended him back to God, and then I sang... Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. 
And then my oldest daughter joined me as we sang uh, Amazing Grace. And Harvey passed away while we were in the middle of singing Amazing Grace. It was beautiful. We had the um, memorial service three weeks later, and uh, I invited his best friend from college to speak uh, as of Harvey as friend. We had a patient speak of Harvey as physician, and our youngest daughter spoke of Harvey as father, and I spoke of Harvey as husband. When I was getting my thoughts together, I realized this beautiful bookend of our relationship starting and stopping with that hand held holding on and my sister saying amazing grace it's amazing grace at the service it, it was beautiful i want to end um, by sharing an analogy that came to me about 10 years ago of my life or my existence in this world and it's of a tree. Um, my roots are really deep and they are, my roots are grounded in faith and my family and my friends and my values. They really, really keep me grounded and deep. And my trunk is myself. It's, it's strong, but it's flexible enough to blend, to bend in the wind. And my branches spread out and provide protection over my children, my patients, and my husband eventually. You know, leaves gather their energy from the sun and give nourishment and energy to the whole tree. And if I extend my branches and my leaves into the warmth of God's love, I can have a source of energy available at all times. But I'm not just one tree. I am a tree in a forest, right? So there are trees that are bigger than me that are spreading their protective branches over me. And in a forest, all the roots are all intertwined and interconnected, making the whole forest stronger than each individual tree. So that led me to the Bible verse that I want to share. Um, this is Jeremiah 17, verse 8, they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Thank you. Well, first of all, I just have to thank Renee for sharing her story because for me, like I said, I'm walking this journey. My mom has been diagnosed with um, early Alzheimer's and I have to tell you, it's a hard journey for the caregiver. Mm -hmm. My sister and I, you know, doubt ourselves constantly. Mm -hmm. I could totally relate to her saying, you know, when she was trying to figure out if she should put him somewhere, you know, I mean, it's just, you love, I mean, you love your parent, you love your husband, you want to take the best care of them as possible. And with this disease, you're never given a clear answer. You know, that was another thing. I mean, I was hanging on every single word that she said, because I wanted to glean any insight mm -hmm. in or wisdom that I could have. But the thing is, Alzheimer's affects everyone so differently mm -hmm. that there's a different way of caring for each person. And, and honestly, the only way to get through it is to rely on the Holy Spirit's guidance of just, you know, what, what's best in this situation, God. And, and, and that's what she did. 
I loved her analogy of the tree and how that just lines up with her spiritual walk. Mm-hmm. Um, she just talked about the different, you know, the roots and the trunk and the leaves and the trees and just how that, you know, how that aligns with God. And I loved when she said that the leaves are like they gather the sunlight to give her a source of energy. And that is so the Holy Spirit to me personally. I can't make it through this life without his protection and his energy and his guidance in our life. So that to me, that just spoke to me so well. Yeah. And that, um, you know, I talked a little bit in the opening and to bring it back around when she really struggled with her faith. And, and that's what I love is that Holy Spirit meets us right where we are. There's no Mm -hmm. right or wrong. There's no right way to, um, to do this, you know, and that he meets us right where we are. And that was the perfect picture of that. I love how she honored him throughout the entire story. You know, when we get married and we're standing there saying our vows, we don't know what's to come. Mm -hmm. You say in sickness and in health, Mm -hmm. but did she ever dream that this would be their path? Mm -hmm. I would, I would guess not, but it really spoke when she said that the caregiver said, we are here to care for him so that you can just love him. And, you know, Renee really loved her husband. She respected him. She honored him. And just the whole picture of marriage in this story was something that that's really my takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we titled this one love matters because she just Mm -hmm. loved him so well. Yeah. And, um, and for me, it was, I mean, it energized me listening to her story in order to love my mother, you know, better, you know, as well. And just in the guidance that she gave me. So again, I just want to thank her for sharing and, um, and I want to encourage anybody else out there that is, that is taking care of a loved one that has Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's of just like, you know, really lean in to God and, and allow his spirit as we've been talking about to fill you with, with the fruit of his spirit. That's patience, right? That's, that's love (laughs) and, and gentleness and kindness. And we need it, especially it's an ugly, ugly disease that, um, that's so different from any kind of physical illness. Um, and, and, you know, one other thing real quick before we, before we wrap up, you know, her community showed up in such a big way. And, and that is such a help to those caregivers out there because especially those who were staying at home with their spouse, Mm -hmm. you know, just Mm -hmm. being able to give them a break, you know, I mean, that was, that was really um, inspiring to me of just how her church body, Mm -hmm. you know, stood alongside her. It was a beautiful picture of the church. Thank you, Renee, for sharing your story. It was so powerful. And we really do enjoy when y'all give us feedback, when you send us an email saying what a story meant to you, or you pass it along to family members. So please, please talk to us, you know, reach out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Storytellers Live Podcast. And we do respond. We see all of your messages. You can find us on our website at storytellerslive.org and sign up for our email list. We have a lot of exciting things coming up. You already heard about Never Thirst and our Discover Your Story Bible study. You'll find out all kinds of things from our email list. So check that out at storytellerslive.org. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your favorite, wherever you get your favorite podcast, whether it's Spotify or Overcast, wherever it is. And we will talk to you next week. Bye.